We are in 1 Corinthians, if you're new, and so uh, if you'd open your Bibles there, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or the first Gospels, tells the story in four different ways, basically, like NBC, CBS, CNN, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Then you have the book of Acts, which is basically the story of the church after Jesus ascended from heaven. They continue to do the work by His Spirit that they were called to do. Uh, Romans is the great theological treatise of Paul in the middle of uh, the New Testament there. And then we have the letter to Corinth, the first letter to Corinth called 1 Corinthians. So we're going verse by verse through uh, this book. And so we are in chapter 3, and we're going to scooch into chapter 4 as well, because uh, some old guy put the chapter markers on there, and Jesus didn't. So we will use the thoughts as we feel uh, they are arranged for what the Spirit's saying. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 is where I'm going to start reading. It'll be on the screen. Here we go. Verse 18 says this, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, moreover, it is the required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, And none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us something that can transform us from the inside out. So I pray By your Spirit, you will speak through your Word today. You'll move me out of the way, and Holy Spirit, you will say whatever words you need to say to those who are here, whether those be words of conviction or words of comfort. But change us, Father. Let us leave here differently, more in love with Jesus, more empowered by Jesus. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So last week, um, last week's text, we saw that Paul uh, was reminding the Corinthian Christians that they are God's construction project, that uh, they are a work site basically in progress. Now, the foundation of Jesus Christ has been and had been laid, and upon this foundation, using a work crew that God had gathered by grace, he is, according to Paul, building himself a dwelling place among his people. The church as Paul said last week, is the temple, the temple of God's Spirit. 
And it is an assembly of individuals who have confessed the name of Jesus Christ, and they each possess the Spirit of God within them. And these people are not special in and of themselves. There's nothing fantastic. They are, as Israel was, someone who God says, I love you. That's it. Although they were very unlovable. And so God has freed many of us, this crew, if you will, of sinners, each with their own individual story. Their own freedom from slavery from something. We all have those unique stories. And God has blessed His children with unique tools. We're all different. We'll have unique things about us. Unique experiences, talents, but we're different tools. And He has issued all of us hard hats. That we might work together on one building project for one purpose, which is to become worshipers. To be worshipers of God. To honor God and make much of His name. So for the last 2,000 years, since the book of Acts here, since the letters to Corinth, we have seen God gather young and old, like we have here today, educated and uneducated, funny and serious, fat and skinny, ugly, good-looking, creative, boring, rich, poor, all of us different, but all united in this mission to make much of Jesus in a particular place and in a particular time. We have been given this city and the area around this city. We've been born and gathered at this time to make much of Jesus. That is the Corinthian mission and that's also our mission. It's no different. It hasn't changed. We have been given breath and a generation of time to make much of Jesus' name. And ironically, as God is building this people, as He's building up this people, the greatest hindrance to His building project is people. So the Corinthian church, imagine, is this building project, right? This work site that's kind of gone a little wild. A little crazy. And it's full of division. That's why he's writing initially this letter. And every individual is claiming spiritual enlightenment. And every individual is building, basically, on this work site that has one very clear foundation shaped like Jesus. And they're building whenever, however, wherever they like. Imagine a work site like that. right? You're building. You're doing stuff. But everyone's doing their own thing and Things are falling down because no one's working together and it's building up and looking ugly. But it's building. So, at the heart though, of all this division is pride. Each individual is claiming that they're more right, they are better than the next person that is building next to them. And each one is boasting in their own greatness. And they're doing this by attaching themselves to particular leaders and pastors that have come through. They're like, well, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter. And then there's the really spiritual, like, well, I'm of Jesus. Right? And they're all just boasting in themselves. That's why they're doing it. And each of them feels probably like they're working for God. Right? Each of them believes that they're actually building in the name of Jesus, but 
what they're actually doing is working for themselves, and what they're actually doing is destroying the one thing that God is trying to build in the name of Jesus. Ironically tragic. So that's what is happening, right? The what. We like the what questions. We don't often, though, ask why this is happening. And I was just thinking about being um, just a, a man, but also a parent in particular, and a husband, and an employee even, and thinking about all the times where we really don't ask why questions. Like with my children, for example. Like when they're doing things, they're disobedient Regularly, right? They do the same thing over and over again. I know the what. You're being disobedient. And I don't like it. Knock it off. I'm not often asking why they're doing that. When my son is irritating his older brother, right? I know the what. You're irritating. Leave him alone. I'm like, why is he doing that? Is there something deeper at work there? Does he want to just be close to his brother? And that's what is actually manifesting it this way. My point is, I don't think we often ask the heart questions. Like, what is going on? Yes, that's obvious, but why is this going on? Why does my wife feel this way? Why does my boss treat me like this? Why? What's going on in the heart to cause that behavior? What is the sin behind the sin? What is the deeper need that's not being satisfied by God? Even about ourselves. Like, I see what I'm doing. Like, why am I doing that, though? Why do I lie in that moment? Why do I want to make sure this person thinks better of me? Because that's really what's happening. That's why we lie. So, the truth is, with Corinth, they're not just picking teams and attaching themselves to different leaders to look better to others. That's what's happening. But they're doing it, picking these teams to feel better about themselves. See, division in the church, and dare I say division in a family or a marriage or any group of relationships, division is caused typically by an issue of identity. Identity in an individual. As people, and I don't think we'll admit this. I know I won't. Maybe you're a little more you know, spiritual than I am. We typically don't admit this. As people, we cannot stop thinking about ourselves. Okay? I mean, we're always trying to feel better about ourselves. We're always trying to feel like somebody. We're always trying to prove to ourselves and to others that we have value. And because we're so overly concerned, overly self-concerned. Now, you have to be a little self-concerned. Otherwise, you'll never brush your teeth or change your clothes and it'll just be terrible. But... When you become overly self-concerned, when you're always thinking about yourself, naturally what happens is you stop concerning yourself with others. More than that, what happens is your self-centeredness, very practically speaking, becomes and works against disunity. I'm sorry, against unity. And this is because I believe, and you may agree with me, that our identity is often only satisfied when we compare ourselves with others. So, think about this. Those who have less than you, makes you feel better about yourself. Those that maybe aren't as good looking, 
aren't as smart, aren't as educated, aren't as wealthy, whatever. That makes us feel better that I'm not, I'm better off than that guy. I'm not saying we do that out loud, but I think we do it subtly. And the same, it follows that when we compare ourselves with those who have more than us, that are more blessed, that are more fortunate, that are more successful or gifted or whatever, we feel worse. And both of these, guess what, are rooted in the exact same thing. Pride. Something God hates. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said it, I think, very well. Pride is not the pleasure of having more as much as it is the pleasure of having more than the next person. So in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes that his hope for the Corinthians is that they will not be prideful. He's hitting on the why. Why you guys are doing this. Why you have divisions. Why you're competing with one another for stuff. It's because you're prideful. In fact, he specifically says he wants them to stop finding their identity in the world and find their identity in the Word. That's the two options. He wants them to learn how not to be, stop being puffed up against one another. He says in verse 6, I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us. So he says brothers, like, okay, this is where I'm going. You may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now I love Pastor Tim Keller. He's really old and preaches awesome, and I realize I'll never be able to preach like him so I can listen to him and not feel really bad about myself, right? He's fantastic. He wrote, I think it's from a sermon, um, a short ebook called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Read it. He talks about this text in here, and I'm going to borrow some things from him. But in it, he explained that the, there's a unique word that's used here for this idea of being puffed up. And he says it literally, it's, it's, a, it's connected with pride, and it literally means overinflated, swollen, and distended beyond its proper size. And the image is that of this, this bloated, distended body organ, right? Imagine that. This is distended body organ, like a stomach or something, that has too much air pumped into it. This is man's identity. Okay? Empty and overinflated. It's a bloated, painful, swollen body part ready to burst at any moment. And there was a time when our identity was not empty, was filled up. It was pain-free. It was strong. There was a time when it was certain we knew who we were. And I know specifically as guys, I think women struggle the same thing. We're always asking questions like, okay, who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? See, in the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, was a time when we knew who we were. And in the beginning, Scripture describes us as creations, the pinnacle of God's creation, the only thing made in the image of God, and we enjoyed a very special relationship with God. We were loved by God in a very unique way. He provided everything we needed, and we depended upon Him for everything, including our identity. But men, 
rebelled. And we even saw a couple weeks ago, I talked about in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve is tempted, the temptation comes to fruition when she says, she looked at the fruit that God had said, don't eat or you'll die, and said, that looks like something that will make me wise. Just as Paul has been talking about this man's wisdom. And so men fell as they sought wisdom apart from God. And when they fell, they abandoned their relationship with God and their identity was lost. They became empty. What's that look like? Well, they lost any true sense of who they were, of what they're supposed to do. And we see from the very beginning, the first words, disunity in all relationships. Husbands are blaming wives. Wives are blaming snakes. Husbands are blaming God. The woman you made me caused me to do this. Disunity because of a loss of identity. And since then, men have wandered the world generation after generation with a God-given sense of eternity in their hearts, this God-shaped void, if you will, with a sense of a need to fill it, to, to be valuable, to be somebody, to have an identity. But, as Keller, I think, so aptly says, anything we put in there is too small as it is designed only to house God. But that doesn't stop us from searching. And we search for all kinds of things to build our lives on and ultimately to fill that emptiness with that is never satisfied. And all these things that we fill in eventually hurt us like an inflated or overinflated body part. But, in order to alleviate the pain, we think that we'll just fill it with something else. And we find something new to satisfy. And what happens is a swing between pride and despair as our sense of self and my desire to feel worthy and my need to be sure I'm somebody, it remains just unfulfilled. So the what of what is happening is is obvious. The why of of what's going on is not so clear. We never really admit until I think the grace of God reveals it to us that our problem is one of the heart. And so we lie to ourselves and we lie to others pretending that the, the chaos that is our life and the chaos in our life is the result of something or someone else that if removed or brought in, would fix everything. In essence, what happens is our judgment is so infected with sin, right? I believe that we are totally depraved. Not absolutely, we don't become the worst we could ever be, but totally even our judgment is tainted by sin. Meaning that we don't even perceive our problems or their solutions Accurately. We deceive ourselves. So that's why Paul is telling the Corinthians from the very first verse, he's, be careful about self-deception. Not other people fooling you, yourself fooling you. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool. Did you know that you could deceive yourself? I know you don't think you're deceived, right? Neither do I. But we can deceive ourselves. How, do we, how does that happen? And be careful, again, letting the veil drop over and going, yeah, I'm glad Bob's here to hear this. 
Or I wish John was here to hear this. Right? It's you and God right now. We deceive ourselves first and foremost into believing that the world isn't actually broken. We wrongly believe that there's these promises out in the world, and they are out there, and we believe that those promises are true, that it will give us meaning, the world can give us hope, the world can give us joy, and that actually sin may actually satisfy. And the harder part about this is that we see people in our own lives, in our families, succeeding with the world's wisdom. That's the world. Oh, come on. I mean, I love Jesus. This guy does it, but look at him. He's rocked it. And so you see that and you go, well, gosh, maybe the world isn't as broken as I thought. Maybe you begin to doubt God's ways just like Adam and Eve did. Well, maybe it's not really true. Maybe it's kind of half true. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe He's not telling me the truth. Maybe God's ways don't really satisfy. Maybe they don't really lead to life. So you begin to believe the lies and you begin to worship things and you sacrifice to get those things so that you can get meaning. But in the end, they fail to satisfy and you realize they were deceived. You were deceived for a little while. So you go, well, maybe it's that. Deceived the world is not broken, but it is. But then, we deceive ourselves into believing that we're not broken. See, many of us uh, will come to a place, and many of us have seen others come to a place, where they come face to face with the consequences of their brokenness, right? It's there. You cannot avoid it. Broken relationships, like, I, relation, I'm terrible, I can't do relationships. And you just are destroying people around you. Marriages, just friendships. We're broken emotionally, right? You've got half the world popping pills to figure out who they are, and they're just like, oh, I just can't figure out life. you got physical brokenness, right? Our body parts start falling off at certain ages, and you're like, I'm just broken. It's clear. We're broke financially, right? None of us have enough. We never have enough money. Like, a little bit more, I'll be okay. We see the, the brokenness around us. It's obvious to everyone. But that doesn't mean that we necessarily ever admit that the root cause is spiritual brokenness. It's bad luck, right? It's just a bad season. It's a bad decision. Anything but a bad heart. In fact, we don't even typically believe that we are part of the problem at all. Think about all the things that right now are irritating you in life, that are obstacles in life. We point the finger constantly away from ourselves. I mean, what is broken is the system. Right? That's what's broken. If that was fixed, everything would be great. What's broken is the communication. If I'd been told, this is the way I would say it, what's broken is that other person. They weren't so screwed up, I wouldn't be so screwed up. We wouldn't be so screwed up. What's broken is the leadership. What's broken is the church. What's broken is the boss. What's broken is anything and everything but me. My identity is secure. I know who I am. Everyone else, they're confused. We deceive ourselves to believe we're not broken. And then we deceive ourselves because of that of how to fix the brokenness that's pretty obvious to all of us. Even though we don't think there's something broken in us, we certainly feel something. 
And we wrongly believe then that the solution to that emptiness, the way to feel better about ourselves, is to pursue more self-esteem. What you look up the dictionary will say, pride in oneself. Pride. I just need to be more prideful. Then I'll feel better. And we, we laugh at that, but I was in the education system, and that was one of the favorite words. Self-esteem, 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 without any kind of context. You just got to feel better about yourself. And so what happens is, in that name, we continue to search for something to fill up that emptiness, to feel important, to feel special, to feel valued, and we follow the world's recipe for fixing bad feelings. And we begin just to do what the Corinthians did, boast in ourselves. Boast in what I've done. Boast in who I am. Boast in all these things. And invariably that leads to exactly what it did in Corinth, the coveting compare game that can only result in pride or despair. So we deceive ourselves. We can even deceive other people. But God is never fooled. That He knows what our deepest need is and what we're pursuing. And at the heart, the Corinthians are identifying themselves with a particular teacher in order to feel better about themselves. And in response to their self-judgment, Paul's going to instruct them exactly where they should be finding their identity by telling them where he's finding his. So Paul's telling them, like, this is how I see myself. This is, this is what my identity is found in. And he's saying, brothers, this is you as well. He says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards they be found Faithful. But with me is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Oh, those are good verses. Three and four, oh man, those are are almost tattoo level verses. They are good. You should read those to yourself often. Paul is going to lay out where he finds his identity. And the first thing he does is tell them where he doesn't find it. He says, my identity is not found in the judgment of men. Now he says, it's a small thing. It's a small, minuscule, little thing, insignificant, that I should be judged by you or any human court. Paul's identity is not found in the judgment of men. And the Corinthians, what they're doing very boldly, is making judgments about men, Paul included. And we later see in the letter that they're basically dismissing Paul. They're questioning his authority, questioning his apostleship, questioning his skills as a teacher. Paul doesn't care. He tells them, I don't really care. Because I do not look to the Corinthians for approval. He doesn't care about the judgments of men, positive or negative, right? We always think judgments are negative. They're not. Sometimes they're very positive. You're awesome. Well, thank you. I, I, I am, aren't I? Right? It's not just the criticism of men, it's the praise. Paul says, I, I don't care. I don't care, positive or negative. I don't look, Paul says, to any human court for a verdict that declares me worthy, valuable, or somebody. Now, That's really hard to do. Let's be honest. That's really hard to do. We all love the approval of men. 
dare I say, we think we all need the approval of men. But when you root your identity, I mean your identity, who you are in the judgment of men, you just begin to think way too much about yourself and particularly what other people think. And what happens is when people say or think or assume things about you, it becomes really important, so important that when it's driven by what people think about you, like your identity is, you become devastated. Just devastated by any comment or criticism or sense of disapproval. You become governed by it. Like, I just want people to like me. Oh, I hope they didn't think this about me. And you have anxiety. Or the praise. You start giving praise. You start puffing yourselves up. Until someone comes with a little pin of criticism and goes, right? And deflates you. So you go back and forth between this inflated and deflated state, feeling inferior and superior because you're just listening to men to define who you are. But then Paul gives us a twist on it, right? Not what we expect. He says his identity is not found in the judgment of men, it's not even found in his own judgment of himself. He says, in fact, I don't even judge myself. So you don't exchange the judgment of men for your own judgment, right? You don't just go to a, well, it doesn't matter. It only matters what I think about myself. And while well-intended as a statement for your children or, or things like that, it's actually quite unbiblical and dangerous. Because when you begin to base your identity on your own judgment, you begin to think actually so little of everyone else's judgment that you never listen to any level of criticism. And you dismiss any encouragement you might get from any level of praise. You begin to define your life really by your own standards. And what happens there is you pity those who don't meet them. And you criticize those who exceed them. Right? If somebody has more than you, well, here's why. You become the standard of all things. You become the standard of righteousness, the standard of success, the standard of everything. Paul doesn't judge himself because he, perhaps more than any other writer here, knows his flesh very well. And he knows that what he thinks about himself, let's be honest, I know what I think about myself is not necessarily true, good or bad. We have to be very careful because... We tend to set standards that are too high or too low. We begin to evaluate ourselves based off of laws that we set in our own mind. Like, you know what? I feel pretty darn good. I'm pretty awesome. I've been a pretty holy person. Or when we fail and we fall short of whatever law that we feel like we've set up. I should be doing this. Oh, I feel bad that I failed this way. We start beating ourselves up in ways that are not biblical because we're evaluating ourselves according to a standard that is our own, and that changes. And again, all you have is pride or despair. The only two places you can go. Because what will happen is you will either be dishonest about your sin or you'll be overwhelmed by it, devastated by it. Those are terrible extremes. So Paul tells... Him, this is how you should regard us, brothers. This is how you should look at us, which means this is how you should look at yourselves. 
See, the problem with the, the Corinthians is they are looking to somebody, someone to judge them to be somebody. They have identity crisis on their hands. And Paul says you can't trust the judgment of man, you can't even trust your own. And Paul has come to this point for himself where he has stopped thinking about himself entirely. Which again is very difficult for us to do. And instead of focusing on the judgment of men or his own judgment, he rests and preach and meditates on the judgment of God. What God has declared about Paul and every Christian in his word. That's where he sits. See, there is a huge difference between an identity that is puffed up with pride and one that is filled with the gospel. When you have an identity that's puffed up with pride, you are always discontent. You're always discontent, and most, if not all, of your relationships, quite frankly, are selfish. But when you are filled with the gospel, when you are filled with the grace that comes from faith, grace in the, the truth, right? The, the faith that Jesus Christ died for you, a sinner. When you are filled with that truth, you become content in who you are and become very selfless in all of your relationships. Paul says, I, I don't care who you say that I am. And I don't care who I think I am. The only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is who, by faith in Christ, God says that I am. You got to preach yourself that every day, every moment. Because it's so tempting to go, well, who do they say that I am? Well, no, I, I think I am. It doesn't matter what they think. It doesn't matter what you think. It matters what God says in His unchanging Word. So who does God say Paul is? Well, your lucky day is, he tells us. See, it's not a matter of avoiding all opinions. It's a matter of getting the right one. And God's is the only one that matters. So here's what Paul is. This is who you are in Christ. God has identified Paul as his son. As his son. He says at the very end of chapter 3, speaking to the Corinthians, like you're picking all these teams, you are Christ. Pick who you want. You have it all. You are Christ. There is a judge. There is one judge who perfectly executes justice. And that one judge in Christ has given a verdict, a judgment. And the Gospel says that God has given His judgment before any performance. Before any work. Before being fixed. Before being clean. God has judged. See, the Keller makes a great point. He says that Gospel Christianity is the only faith. Take any faith. Any religion. Gospel Christianity is the only faith where performance doesn't lead to verdict. 
what you do, all the bad, all the good, and okay, now let's see how the scales. That's not how Christianity works. In Christianity, the verdict leads to performance. Faith in the verdict leads to performance. There's no need then to compare. There's no need to be or try and be better than. There's only what God has said we are in Christ. And what has He said? You're approved. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are somebody. You are valuable. You are special. You are a child of the King. Irrevocably. That's who He says that you are in Christ. So it doesn't matter if you think or the world thinks you're not blank. I'm not successful. I'm not holy. I'm not whatever. It only matters that you are Christ's. That's all that matters. God has identified you as a son or a daughter. But that's not all. Paul didn't stop there. Right? It's easy to like, well, I'm a son. All right, I'm going to go sit in a hole somewhere and just think about that. It's not what he says. God has also identified him as a servant. He says, regard us as this, servants of Christ. See, the knowledge of being a son transforms our identity and our perspective, especially toward others. The gospel informs Paul not only that his worthless old self was buried with Jesus, but that it has been risen to new life. And with that life, Paul no longer is a slave to sin. He's no no longer a servant to sin. He is a servant to Christ. A slave to righteousness. He has a Lord. He has a Master. He has an owner. He has a life and lives a life of self-denial because Christ lives it through Him whereby His desires are always in submission into the desires of the King. He is called, he is identified as a servant and called to serve as Jesus served, with the power to serve as Jesus served, selflessly, considering the needs of all others, even his enemies, more important than himself. To serve to the point of loss, even to the point of death, those who are unlovable. You're identified as a servant. And the thing that I think is interesting is that a lot of people are like, yeah, I'm going to serve. And so what they do in a church and other places, they wait for the perfect little, I'll use myself, Sam-shaped spot. Well, that's what I'm designed to do. I can serve there. I'll wait for my little niche to open. That's not what servants do. Servants serve. Servants see the need and serve whatever it is. And I'm not saying this, oh, this is the big pitch. Get people in kids' road. No, we need them. But that's not it. It's that you are called to serve wherever you are. Not even just in the church, but certainly in the church. You are a servant. God has identified you as a servant in Christ, which means you're a servant in your marriage. A lot of times we're in marriage going, well, if she would, he would serve me, then everything would be fantastic. You're the servant. You're a servant in your job. 
but they're not Christians. Doesn't matter. You're serving the Lord in your job. You are a servant in your family. You are a servant in your city. You are a servant in your neighborhood. How you doing? You are identified as a servant. But you're not just a son. You're not just a servant. This is the awesome and difficult one. God has identified Paul as his steward. Steward of the mysteries of God. See, that's more than a servant. A steward is one that's charged with a particular responsibility. A steward is one who is appointed to a task, who is given a job. A steward is one who is owned by God and is given ownership of some of God's stuff. See, a steward is someone that really doesn't own anything and everything they have is being managed by them for the owner. He asks in verse 7 to the Corinthians, who become so boastful about all the stuff they've got, he says, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it, right? We do the exact same thing. Look at the life I've made for myself. Really? You know I made wise financial decisions? Who gave you the brain to do that? Well, I built this company. Who gave you the hands to do that? The list is endless. Consider all the things that you have been entrusted with. Not the things you have, the things that you've been entrusted with that are owned by God. Like what? Well, there's certainly gifts and talents and skills. There are also experiences, right? There are people in this church, young and old. Some of you have been more seasoned in life, had experiences, successful ones and unsuccessful ones, been through hardship and difficulty and suffering, and those have been entrusted to you by God to be used for Him. Marriages that are more mature. There are younger marriages that are less. Doesn't mean you have every answer. Doesn't mean you did everything perfectly. It means that you've been married for 25 years and know what it's like, and these people who are married for two are struggling. You've been entrusted with certain things. You've been entrusted with people in your life that you're to care for. Neighbors. Friends. You've been entrusted with particular relationships, with a job. You've been given money that is God's. Time that is God's. A mind that is God's. The body that is God. Children that is God's. A husband has been entrusted to you wives. Wives. Husbands, you have a wife that's been entrusted, a daughter of the king has been entrusted to you to steward, to take care of, to cultivate. We, if you are committed to this body, you've been given a church. A gather, you have been entrusted with it. God has said, here you go, steward this well. We've been given a message of the gospel. You've been given and trusted with a message to take care of. And the thing about stewarding is like stewarding is more than just holding. It's more than just putting it in the safe and t- locking it away and make sure no one touches it. Stewarding and any good manager not only keeps something untarnished, but he makes it more beautiful. He builds into it because he knows that 
the owner is going to return and demand an accounting for what you've done with what you have been given. That should sober all of us. People have been given to us, wives, husbands, things. They're not yours. They're God's. Even your very breath is owned by God. God has identified you as a steward. So in conclusion, I I plead with you not to be deceived. Lots of things we can be deceived and we deceive ourselves with. First and foremost, you cannot fix yourself. If you're looking at your life right now and going, if you are not a believer, going, oh my gosh, I am just very dissatisfied. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I'm telling you right now, you cannot fix yourself. You need Christ. None of us, Christian or not, are going to be able to find what we're looking for in the world. It will not satisfy, even if it satisfies for a little bit. And don't deceive yourself. You cannot grow in your faith alone. You need me. I need you. We need each other. That is the way God has designed it. Growth of God's people. Yes, the growth of your faith, the growth of our faith requires unity where we think the same. We are moving together in the same way and we are growing together up into the same thing. But unity requires humility. And humility, gospel-centered humility, is not thinking less of yourself. Like, I'm so, oh, I'm such a horrible person. You're much better. It's just thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. Refuse to listen to the world's judgment and refuse to listen to your own to determine who you are. The only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is who by faith in Christ God says you are in here. And in Christ, it's very clear. You are a son or daughter of the king. You are a servant and you are a steward. Which means you have an identity irrevocably, and it's an awesome one. You have a role and you have a responsibility and there is freedom in forgetting yourself and living in Christ. And the only, only with your identity secure in Christ will you really be able to experience genuine contentment, genuine peace, genuine hope, genuine joy in what He has made you to be and what He has called you to do. Only in Christ. We're going to take communion together. We take it as a family meal to remind us of two things. One, many of us have tried to fill our emptiness with something other than Christ. And it's not like, I used to do that. We do that often. And so we come to the table every single Sunday, every time we gather, not only because Jesus commanded it, because it reminds us of who we are. It reminds us as we go up there that I am a sinner saved by grace. I am more sinful than I would ever admit. I don't judge myself right, but I am more loved than I could ever imagine. That's what you're reminded of. But we do it together because we're reminded that we are a family. That we are brought together for a purpose. And it is to not only bring glory to God, but it is to bring encouragement and love and joy to one another. Let's pray.